Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we will be discussing the future of health and wellbeing in education. We are joined by Professor John Fischetti, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the College of Human and Social Futures, University of Newcastle. With four decades of experience in the education field, Professor Fischetti is challenging the way we think about and see education and the schooling system. Hello, John, and welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. How are you? Thanks for including me in this. Schools are a reflection of the society that contains it. At present, society seems to be stuck between the ideals of the Industrial Revolution and the digital age. Our understanding of healthy habits and views on health in general have also changed. For example, in 1964, around 58% of the adult population smoked daily. But when compared to 2019 data, that figure fell to only 11.6%. This is one of the many social shifts around health. As far as education goes in the school system, where are we at and where are we going? Well, Jack, that's a complex question. Do we have all day? (laughs) No, it's a a really good question. And I think you've touched on one of the most important aspects of what I think may have come out during the COVID period where around the world there are still schools doing school from home, like in India, uh, some in the U.S. and South America, as you know. But really what we found is the well-being component of schools has been underrated perhaps during the last several years And it has been one of the things that kids miss the most. Some of that well-being is just generally feeling appreciated and loved as a learner. And some of that is about health and wellness that the overdose of these kind of Zoom or Skype kind of conversation does. If you're only on screens, if you're only doing work and you're not part of health, physical education, total well-being, you can get caught up in just an intellectual world and actually not be going well. In the U.S., they have something called the COVID-19 which is about the average American has gained 19 pounds during COVID. Now you can translate that into kilos and and do your math, but that's six or seven uh, kilos of weight. So overall, this has been a very dramatic time to reinvent whether schools have a purpose since we could do it all at home anyway. And one of the bigger areas is actually in the well-being space. And that's an excellent segue into um, into the next question. And though in some health aspects we have improved, like with the um, smoking, with every new era comes new issues. One of the biggest problems facing the modern world is obesity. Work published by the Central Intelligence Agency says that out of 191 countries, Australia has the 27th most obese population. Another survey shows that 25% of Australians under the age of 18 are either overweight or obese. That's 1.2 million young Australians. Why do you think this is occurring? A moving into the innovation age, what roles will schools play in combating this issue? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I think you've identified possibly one of the issues that will jeopardize the younger generation from you and younger and their ability to have great lives. There's a couple of answers, and I don't want to get all academic around it, but there's this concept called massification. Um, What we've done in the Western world in particular, not taking on indigenous ways of knowing on this one, by the way, is create what I call fake food. And because people are living busy lives where they're often coming and going, young parents have their kids in soccer and dance and they're all running around. Mealtime is often just quickly through the drive through getting home, hurrying up. And a lot of the food that's been created, that the McDonald'sization of society has meant a lot of it just is really bad for us. So the extra weight gain, the extra unhealth is primarily three things. And I hate to be this simple about it. We have too much salt in our diet, too much sodium. 
too much sugar and we don't move enough. And if there was a way through the schooling process to really help people take charge of their sodium intake, the sugar intake, and then they moved more, uh, we would all be healthier. I've seen numbers that are far greater than that, that almost half of our young people are actually clinically obese. Think about what that means for the future of the healthcare system, just how people aren't happy. And when you're not happy, then you're not sleeping, and then it goes, the cycle continues. So this is an urgent call that we have to make this a high priority, but some of it is the habits that families have now to shortchange really creating food in every evening and for breakfast and lunch that is actually good for us. And a lot of that can be cheaper. But one of the things the fast food uh, industry has done is convince us that somehow we're better off with the supersized Coke and the supersized chips and the extra double cheeseburger thingamajig that has extra onion rings and chips on top of that with mayo extra mm. juicing out of it. Most of that is fake food and it's killing us. You're listening to Wellbeing. We are discussing the future of health and well-being in education with Professor John Fischetti, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the College of Human and Social Futures, University of Newcastle. And um, building on top of that, something I've um, read is that um, historically we were more likely to starve to death, but now we're more likely to eat ourselves to death. Yes, and possibly one of the most important diseases of your generation will be sedentary disease. I'm not sure if you're a gamer, but a lot of folks have grown up um, since my generation where they play games a lot as their hobby. I used to go outside and play basketball. There, there wasn't the NBA 2K or whatever it all is. Um, and there's many of those games have met a lifestyle of sedentary. Most office jobs are sitting. Look what we're doing right now. So right, sitting right. disease, along with the poor diet, contributes then to overall ill health. There are solutions in breaking that habit, and that is programming in some movement along the way. And a lot of people have taken us up on that. There's almost two kinds of people through COVID who, who had to work at home. Those that got worse off and the very few who actually use the extra space of being home instead of in an office to get out more and be with your family, ride bikes. I thought it was most encouraging that in New South Wales, one of the largest growing industries last year was the bicycle industry. The, and, and bike fix-it shops are short of repair people, um, right. which is a good sign that more people are trying to move. It just... It might be that population we call the choir, where they were already convinced and they used that time to do more. But for a lot of us now, we've gotten more unhealthy during the last year. Back in school and with a new set of, of uh, opportunities, I think we're going to have to make this high, as high a price, a uh, higher priority as literacy and numeracy is. It's overall health. And you've identified possibly the future of Australia not being bright because many of our young people will have such bad habits the cardiovascular disease, the sedentary diseases, non-communicable diseases, those things we can actually prevent could lead the death charts even more than cancer um, in the next you know, generation ahead, your generation. Let's talk about you, your story for a moment. What was your journey that led you to where you are today? Well, it's a wonderful question. I'll try to give a couple of snippets. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and many Australians have had the chance to visit New York pre-COVID and have walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, but the hospital I was born in is actually Brooklyn Hospital, not far from the Brooklyn Bridge. I went to public school in New York City. They have so many schools in New York, they number them. So I went to public school eight and then to 102. They've right. run out of names to name them because 10% of all of the school-aged children in the United States go to school in New York City. Right. It's that big a place. It's like, oh, that's a lot of kids. Uh, we used to eat lunch on the Brooklyn Bridge. So my journey starts in New York, but I finished school in the state of Virginia. 
and then went to the University of Virginia in, in the U.S. Uh, for my undergraduate career. When I finished, everybody along the way told me I should be a preacher or a teacher, and I said neither of them, thank you. But when I finished uh, um, my undergraduate career, still wasn't sure what to do. So I went into something called Volunteers in Service to America, VISTA, which is like the Peace Corps, which I think you've heard of, where Americans go around the world to do good. A lot of that very naively, by the way. Um, but this is about doing it in your own country, because I was right. convinced the U.S. has a lot of poverty, a lot of mm. inequities, and I could help with that. So I went to the Miami, Florida, where I worked with the Haitian Refugee Center during a very volatile time, 1980. I could tell you more about that in another interview or podcast or um, at your own pleasure. But in that experience, I worked with Haitian young people from the island of Haiti who, you may know there was a massive earthquake there not that long ago. It's an completely impoverished place. Mm. Most are illiterate people, unfortunately, because they haven't been to school. And many get on a boat and come about the 90 miles across to Miami thinking there's gold in the streets of Miami, Florida, right. on the southern end of South Beach, which you probably heard of is a glamorous place to go. It wasn't so glamorous in 1980. Hmm. Uh, those, those young people had never been to school, and my job was to tutor them and help transition them into school. And, and then I decided to go back and be a teacher. So I did a master's degree. We call it an MTeach here and went into teaching. So flash ahead 38 years and um, had the opportunity eight years ago to to go for a position here at the University of Newcastle. And what I love about Newcastle, the Hunter, New South Wales, and all of Australia is the the education system here people underestimate is really good. But for the Hunter and Newcastle, we really have to overcome this post-industrial malaise that comes from the closing of the steel mill, the related industries. And I like to say, Jack, that it's it's the mind instead of the mind from here. And how do we get an education system right for every child because we can't afford any longer to have our wealth as a country coming off of just digging stuff out of the ground and shipping it somewhere else it's going to have to come from our curiosity our intellectual vitality the genius of our people uh, and we're going to have to do that in a way that that every child has an opportunity to be successful whatever that means for them we can't arrest on about 30 percent doing well about 30 percent hanging in and 30 percent not a country can't provide enough people if we're carrying on their back. We all have to do our part. 25 million people competing in a world with countries with a billion and a half have to really be keen. So education or nothing. And that's what I get the privilege of helping to drive and run here at the University of Newcastle. And I think um, building upon that as well, I think, you know, because the evidence does suggest um, that blue collar jobs are disappearing um, down to automation. You know, with a population of just 25 million, if Australia wants to make it in the global market, no longer can we afford to not be educated. If we don't address the issues with the current system, what are the effects we can expect to see on the nation's well-being and the lives of the people themselves? Yeah, to me, you've now identified the core of what makes me get up in the morning, and that is that our system of education, particularly K-12 schooling, is predominantly obsolete. Hmm. One of my quotes is that for too long, schools have been places that young people go to watch their teachers work. Right. I don't know if that was your experience. You're in school still, and here you are doing an interview on 2NUR. But the opportunity for us to rethink schooling is right in front of us. Um, The way in which we do school is very passive. There's a curriculum you're supposed to master, but there's not a lot of choice in it. Students go through the motions. They go through the process. And on on the other side, the sorting system of an HSC and an ATAR actually allows us to only about 30% to be successful. 
That's what the normal curve does when you try to normalize things and right. force people into the bell curve. So it's perfectly designed for only one third to be successful, which worked well in the industrial age where we needed about one third to be successful, very successful, one third to do the digging and the shipping and the, the, the mills and the mines work. And then we could still carry about one third on our backs. Either those were young people or old people or sick people. Right now, that middle third, it's going, going, gone in the next 20 to 30 years. And we can't have a system stacked against 35, 40% of the population or even more than that. And I believe schools from your generation down are actually boring places for most kids. And the kids doing well have sucked it up and just enjoy when they get out of school. They don't mean they're not going well. And we need a different approach to schooling, which means we did need a different kind of teacher to be in those schools. And there's pop-up examples of that all over the place. I just was with some students this morning before I came back to be with you at Cooks Hill campus of Newcastle High with the big right. picture program there that you know. And taking some of my students there who are going to be teachers of the future. I think we need a different kind of teacher for a different kind of school. And if we don't, we don't need taxi drivers in the next 10 years. You, you just mentioned that. We don't need checkers at the supermarkets. We almost don't have them now. With the automation happening as quickly as it is, if we don't create a general set of future-focused skills, critical thinking, problem-solving, entrepreneurism, collaboration, cultural appreciation, use indigenous ways of knowing, and I could go on with those, you won't be flexible enough to adapt hmm. uh, in this market, which has actually made so many of the work of the past obsolete. Um, right. and that's, I don't think we can deny that it's right in front of us and that we can't afford as a country to have about two-thirds of the people disenfranchised. Democracy is such a fragile thing. We see it around the world. There are mm. people who are dying wishing they could be in Australia. Uh, Australia has three amazing things, enough food, enough land, and enough freedom. And yeah. we're going to have to use that to generate a future which puts us out of leaders in the world. Um, that's very unique. Most countries don't have enough land. Mm. They don't have enough food. And many don't have freedom. So what's on the line here, if we don't get everybody savvy, our democracy is subject to being either taken over by people in one way, taking it over with um, narrow-minded conservative politics that take us into a dictatorship, or at the other end, anarchy. Yeah. Uh, and to promote democracy, we need education for everyone, but a different kind of school. And that's what I, that's what makes me live and breathe. And I think, um, and I have experienced that, like, um, in school, I, I, it has been, because like, I've always been someone who was a different child and that learned a different way to most. Um, and I can tell you that a lot of the times I've just been asking myself, why are we doing this? It just doesn't seem relevant to what I'm doing. Well, and look what's right here. I'm, besides my grandbaby's beautiful picture, so much I can get a whole course in anything right here. So if yeah. we're going to go to a place called school, it ought to look different. Because right now I have the Library of Congress on my phone. So I don't think we need teachers as experts who relay information for examinations that we forget the results of within two weeks anyway, 90% we actually forget. So let's turn schools into places we use that knowledge and create new stuff. We make, we build, we design, we exhibit, we, we interview. Uh, action verbs have to be the norm. Hmm. And there's, fortunately, there's a lot of that happening. But the governments are a little slow because they're unsure that that's the way to go and the public a little worried because, in fact, the elite want to keep those, their kids very educated and they're a little worried if they give some of that up, is there enough education to go around for everybody that'll mean their kids are advantaged? So in many ways, we see one of the things that has happened is COVID around the world with education 
is those who have privilege can be home with their kids while they're doing school at home and they can they, can, they have multiple laptops and all the wireless you want. And in most of the world, there isn't that. So the gap between those going well in critical thinking and problem solving is widening. And if you look at the what's happening in India now and in Brazil now, the poorest of the poor who need education are actually disenfranchised from it because they don't have access to those tools. So what's on the line here is actually the future of humanity because it's education right. yep. that will allow yep. us to overcome and create ideas for how to take carbon out of the atmosphere, hmm. how to promote agreements across things like the South China Sea or North Korea or Iran or the Ukraine issue. There's some big issues to solve, and it's yeah. our generation passing those on to you, and you have to feel empowered that we actually can work it out. We can get clean air and water. We can be politically savvy and also work things out uh, with countries that have different ways of doing things. Otherwise, you see where we're headed is to a future that looks ominous mm. and almost a sci-fi movie you've probably seen enough of. <laughs> uh, or it can be really positive, and yep. I think we've got the chance still to do this, and that's why we've got to change schools sooner than maybe others would think we need to. And it seems like how you're describing it to me is that it's going to be more about skills rather than just knowledge. It, yeah, I think it's knowledge, skills, and dispositions. So the knowledge is sort of the facts and stuff, which we could say we can always remind ourselves up and Alexa or Siri or somebody's going to help us with. Um, and then it's the skill to apply that knowledge, absolutely. But then it's also developing our humanness, the kind of people we are that comes from studying the arts, the humanities, the social science, the values, because it's who you are as a person that'll make you great, Jack, not what you know. It'll mm -hmm. be that combination that'll make you great in the long run. So I think it's all three. And working together, a democracy requires learning how to disagree. Definitely. And I don't know if you've taken mm -hmm. a course in that, but you and I might have a fundamental disagreement of whether there should be penalty kicks at the end of, of the, the soccer match or the World Cup. You know, that's a funny way to finish a World Cup is we could finish it on penalty kicks. So we could have an argument about that, but in the end, we should try to work it out. And maybe there's a new, new way to do it. I use that funny example because there's a lot of world debate about soccer in right now. <laughs> um, but if you took one of the really hard problems, we should be able to talk about it and still agree at the end that we're humans sharing this beautiful planet and this beautiful space together. And we want to be colleagues and work it out. We don't have a lot of good role models for that right now. No, no. Schools are the one place we need to learn that because some families are having a hard time with that. Mine certainly did. <laughs> You're listening to Wellbeing. We are discussing the future of health and well-being in education with Professor John Fischetti, Pro Vice-Chancellor of the College of Human and Social Futures, University of Newcastle. And a lot of those um, in my demographic, 17 to 18 years of age, are about to embark on the uh, HSC. In a survey conducted by the University of New South Wales School of Education, of the 722 students they surveyed, 42% registered high-level anxiety symptoms during the HSC sitting period. Despite the pressure brought on by the HSC, we are already seeing alternative ways to get into university, both in place and emerging. Moving into the innovation age, what changes do you think need to be made to the way students are assessed in the schooling system, and will mental health be a determining factor when making these changes? So we already have some glimpses that this is possible uh, to change. I mentioned a little while ago how the current system is about sorting. So the ATAR is actually a ranking system of you with everybody else in your class with some weights around that, but based on the kind of school or the curriculum you did, the difficulty of it or whatever. Most of that's really arbitrary and really obsolete. And what's replacing it now is the opportunity to go for uni admission early based on success and potential. 
and to prepare a portfolio of your evidence around your skill set that can be represented to a university in lieu of a number. Giving a representation, if you've been in school for 12 years, you probably got a lot of evidence more than a number that can show your potential. Those, are te- those options are taking off all over the country and they already have been piloted all over the world. So I see a slow but steady elimination of a single snapshot, we'll call that an ATAR, of, of, a, a, of a norm referenced approach and really everybody with a shot to make their case that they are ready for the next step with a plan B and a plan C. Right. Uh, because not everybody is going to get into certain things that they prefer, but they might have options which allow them to start in a slightly different direction and move that way or end up somewhere else. I was never going to be an astronaut. My heroes were the ones that landed on the moon in 1968, 1969 era. Uh, but I, my eyes aren't good enough, and I was a little too tall for that space capsule, that right. Apollo at the time. Uh, but that's okay. I, I didn't put it on my bucket list. So if I'd applied, they would have rejected me because I didn't. So it's also about a reality check that not right, everybody yeah. is going to do everything that might be their total favorite. But I could still be a scientist developing experiments for the International Space Station. And now, of course, I possibly could go up because it's a whole different situation there. So I'm not saying to take dreams off people's mind, but reality check around what's possible given who you are and where you come from, and then still make that dream come alive in a different way. The education system has to adjust that. Well-being is also what I call the life-ready graduate, um, which is a scheme we've adopted in our strategic plan here at the university, which is wonderful. That is more than just getting ready for a job. It's also your ability to be involved in extracurricular sports and clubs and options. So you're developing your whole person, building in that exercise regimen that works for you and the opportunity to be really good at a number of things. So should what you did go away because society has changed its emphasis, it's okay because you can be over here. I also don't mind if people have two or three passions. You might play the guitar really well and also like robots. It's okay. Develop both of them so that all sides of your brain are happy. We used to in the past would say, oh, that guitar is not going to make any money, Jack. You should go into engineering. Why not do both? It's okay. And there's Mm. plenty of ways to do that now, which can mean you can entrepreneur yourself and be an engineer the great new guitar for virtual space or, you know, uh, the next garage band 17.0. From the things that we've touched upon today, it seems to me that it's clear that education should be thought of more as an investment rather than a cost. In a nation where we have had five prime ministers in the last 10 years, with each changing administration bringing new ideas on how the country should approach education, do you think some long-term goals with education have been missed. Yeah, you've, you've nailed it. Um, let me give an example in early childhood education. For every dollar we spent on high-quality, five-star early childhood, not just a nanny or a babysitter, who are wonderful, but they're not really learning scientists, as I say, properly prepared teachers, uh, paid as teachers and also with the knowledge, we get 6 to $8 return. Because if you're well-educated in the early years, the first three years of life are so essential. Now, there's 100 billion neurons that turn into 15,000 extra a day through your first three years of life. You're on fire. If you get a, a really crappy first three years, you're going to end up probably not developing your potential. So just in that area, if we invest more, which many countries have done, we don't end up with as much of needs of health care later on. We don't, the education, the students are happier. They tend to go through school and finish. They pay more taxes because they get more skilled. Parents are happier, so they don't have as much stress and marriages are better. So just an investment there by government could create 
a very different generation where more kids who need extra supports in their early years will get them. Some families are able to provide those, not all are. So one way is a full investment in free and publicly funded high quality early childhood for everybody. Not just so mom can go to work, Hmm. but so that those kids get really good care from people who know how to develop their skills. That that investment alone would um, save a generation from having a number of kids fall off before they've really even started. All the way through, there are examples like that we could talk about another time, but it's really exciting to, for you to think about education as investment, not a cost, that the dollar return, if you just want to talk economically, is many times over for students who are well prepared to go forward. We, we will spend it in, in the state of California when I was growing up in the U.S. The state of California led the U.S. in graduation from high school, completion of their HSC, so to speak. Now, the state of California leads the U.S. in incarceration. And mm. most of them are black men of, uh, who have committed small-level felonies, mostly right. drug crimes. So in my life, the investment in education shifted from schooling into putting people in jail and keeping them locked up. Right. So the fastest-growing industry in the state is prisons and guards and mm. all the industries around that. That metaphor we can't allow to come here, but you see it potentially here. Young people who are disenfranchised from their future make choices, which usually mean we need more police, more prisons, more guards in those prisons. That's an investment in education we could do now and prevent all of that, and we'd have a happier, better society. So that's about the best answer I got for the short time we have, and I really appreciate you having me on today. My guest today was Professor John Vachetti, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the College of Human and Social Futures, University of Newcastle. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.